In our final sermon before the Easter season of Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, we once again head to Mark chapter 14. So go ahead, grab your Bibles, get them open at Mark 14 as we continue to look at the Passion narrative and work our way through the verses together. Now last week we saw how multiple things were building towards the institution of communion and the recognition that Jesus was going to die for the sake of mankind. What we learned was that Jesus extravagantly gave of his life on the cross and so we in turn as his disciples are to extravagantly give our lives in return. It will lead us to work for the Lord, to expound our energy and our skills for the sake of the kingdom and it will lead to a deep devotion like the world has never seen. As we move into this week's passage, we continue to build toward the cross of Christ, really cementing the lessons that Jesus has been teaching. But more than that, what we're going to see and recognize is that discipleship in Jesus is more than loyalty. It is faith in action. You see, talk is cheap and action is costly. And in Jesus, we see the costliest action with his death on the cross, which begs the question to each one of us today, are we loyal only in words or are we loyally devoted to Jesus with every fiber of our being? Are we loyal to Jesus only in words or are we loyal to Jesus with every fiber of our being? And I'll be straight with you today. As we walk through this passage, you will find it challenging. But we do not need to fear challenge, for in it we know is the sanctification that we need to serve our Lord Jesus in a worthy manner. And so we're going to jump straight into the passage, doing the work in the verses themselves, letting the Bible shape us, and then come towards our application points. So Mark chapter 14 and from verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now we're just going to pause there. I know it's just one verse, but we're going to look into the setting of this scene for this passage. We begin with the disciples and Jesus still in the upper room, the place where that first communion was instituted, where Jesus clearly describes his death and bloodshed for mankind. They have just shared this monumental meal together, a meal that has been celebrated for thousands of years, and they now finish up with a hymn. It wasn't a randomly chosen hymn. It was common to finish the Passover meal with Psalm 116 through to 118, and it's known as the Hallel. Not only was this special for the disciples, but think about Jesus. He's coming to the pinnacle of his ministry in his earthly sacrifice on the cross, and then just think about the words he would have sung from Psalm 116, say from verse 3. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid a hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. These words would have taken a special meaning on that night. And in a few moments, we're going to see how the Lord called upon his father with this very request to save him from the anguish that he would suffer. And in this one example of the Lord singing with his disciples, we learn an important lesson today. Our heavenly father desires to be praised through sung worship and through hymns and songs. We can find real comfort for the soul. Now, for several weeks, we've been releasing podcasts that time and time again remind us of the importance of God honoring worship with hymns and songs that are doctrinally strong and sound. Yet the call to worship with singing is not a new call. 
Consider just a few selected verses from the Psalms. Psalm 147 and verse 1. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. Psalm 47 and verse 6. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. And then Psalm 149 and verse 1, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. You see, it's not about keeping tune, although I am sure that helps. It's about the heart's desire to praise the Lord, the heart that cannot help but sing praises to God, the heart that cannot help but find strength in the worship of Jesus. You see, worship has nothing to do with performance or looking and sounding good. It has everything to do with the heart and the words sung. And here in Mark 14, the disciples and Jesus sing praises to the Father and declare, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Now, after completing the Hallel, the disciples and Jesus leave the upper room and head toward the Mount of Olives. It was on the Mount of Olives that Jesus gave his final teaching sermon, the Olivet Discourse, with that devastating message that all will come to an end, but with the hope of Jesus returning to rule and reign for eternity. The Mount of Olives, therefore, is a place of great significance in the ministry of Jesus. And so they leave the upper room, having had this meal, having sung the hymn, and head towards the Mount of Olives. Let's continue verse 27. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. As Jesus and the disciples walk toward the Mount of Olives, Jesus chooses this moment to drop a devastating truth in conversation. As Jesus goes to the cross, so the disciples will be scattered and they will run for their lives. Jesus actually directly quotes from Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. The pressure to remain loyal to Jesus would be too much to bear for the disciples. And out of fear for their own lives, they would run feeling dejected and defeated. They still didn't grasp that Jesus must die so that he could victoriously rise from the tomb. They only saw his death on the cross as failure, for this must mean he is no Messiah. He hasn't saved us from the Roman Empire because he has died in a cruel death. Yet even in this devastating truth, there is hope. Jesus would not remain dead. He would come back to life. Once resurrected, he will walk with them again. So there is always hope in Jesus, for nothing can keep him done, nothing can defeat him, for Jesus has supreme authority as creator God. So although the disciples will be lost in the wind of fear and discouragement, Jesus will come back as resurrected Lord and be their master and walk with them again. So you have the devastating truth and the monumental hope in Jesus. But we know the disciples would have only understood the first rather than the second. Verse 29, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. 
but he said emphatically, I, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Peter is full of pride. He sees himself as strong and the other disciples as weak. He will be loyal, even though all the other disciples won't be. Not only is this pride talking, but Peter really is being a rotten friend here, pretty much pointing the finger saying, well, they're all worthless and they will all fall away and they will all deny, but me, not me, never me, I will always serve the Lord. What Peter is doing here is known as spiritual basketball. He doesn't see that the lessons that Jesus is teaching them is important for himself because he thinks he's already grasped it. So he passes it on. He passes the basketball to the next person. Not me, Lord. Never me, Lord. But look over there. They'll definitely fall away. You must be speaking to them. The phrasing here, though, of fall away is quite interesting. It doesn't speak of persecution, rather a tripping up. Essentially, the disciples will trip themselves up in their own lack of faith and in their own sin. What Peter doesn't realise is that he was, in fact, not the strongest or the most loyal. He would be the example of pride comes before a fall. He would do worse than fall away. He would deny Jesus. He would deny that he ever knew Jesus. And in a few weeks, we'll look at the passage in verse 72, but it's fair to say that Peter comes nowhere close to what he promises to do, which is to remain loyal to Jesus and die the death of Jesus in complete loyalty. In this resounding response, he gets all the disciples together and they all declare the same thing. We will never deny. We will never fall away. We will die with you instead. What dramatic and over-the-top words. For Jesus has already told them what will happen. The betrayer has already left. The disciples are already fearful. And time will tell whether or not they will truly honour Jesus. We can be, though, exactly the same as the disciples. Full of good intentions. Full of dramatic, loyal statements. The question is always, will you follow through? Will you just be loyal in words? Or will you be loyally devoted in action? Let's continue verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. In Jerusalem, there were some gardens, but the soil was not usually of good quality. It didn't produce good fruit. The best gardens were outside of the city walls. Specifically, we read, after leaving the upper room, Jesus is heading towards the Mount of Olives. So our focus is on the Mount of Olives. And now we're told that he is heading to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, where is Jesus going? out of the city walls to the Mount of Olives or to the Garden of Gethsemane? Clearly, he's leaving Jerusalem, but where is he actually going? Well, Gethsemane literally means oil press or olive press. So it was likely that this was a garden sat at the foot of the Mount of Olives. It would have had rich soil and be near the Mount of Olives as a prestigious place and a prestigious garden. It was likely owned by a wealthy family. One that I would say Jesus clearly knew of, at least in some basic way. 
Why do I think this? Well, Jesus and his disciples have to keep moving because it has become dangerous for them. So they head out of Jerusalem towards the Mount of Olives into this Garden of Gethsemane. And this is the very place that Judas leads the soldiers to arrest Jesus. The fact that Judas knew where Jesus would be would suggest that either Jesus has been there before or at the very least he has talked amongst the disciples that on the night of Passover they would go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now it's interesting to note that Jesus took his disciples with him. He went with the purpose to pray but he took others with him. It would suggest that Jesus wanted fellowship with his friends and with his father. In Genesis 2.18, we're told, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Yes, after this, we know that God made Eve, but the principle is important. It is not good to be alone. Jesus was going to be betrayed and he would die. And it was not good for him to be alone in this moment. As they arrived at the garden, Jesus splits the disciples. Eight disciples act as an outer ring of prayer and protection. And then he took Peter, James and John as an inner ring of prayer and protection. And we begin to understand the seriousness of all of this when we read that Jesus had gone from being calm to distressed and troubled. This was no walk of random prayer. This was no looking up at the stars and having a relaxing evening. Jesus had become distressed and troubled. He had such a deep sorrow and anguish. He describes it as death. He knew what was about to come to pass and he needed to talk to his father. The disciples were to watch and to pray. And so he has fellowship with his disciples, lovingly praying and protecting the area. And he has fellowship with the father who he can lean on in his time of anguish. So what does Jesus say? Verse 35. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. With an outer ring and an inner ring of the disciples, keeping watch and praying, Jesus went further into the garden, falling to the ground to pray. Now, it was commonplace in the New Testament to stand and pray with lifting hands to heaven. Take 1 Timothy 2.8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. To fall on the ground and pray was not only unusual, but it was also a sign of deep anguish. Number 1622, and they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and will you be angry with all the congregation? This prayer in Numbers was one of distress and anguish, just as Jesus was doing as he fell to the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane. What was the prayer of Jesus? The suffering was going to be extreme. If there was any other way, let it be so. You certainly sympathise with Jesus, don't you? He knew the cruel death that he would suffer and his humanity became distressed knowing the extreme levels that people would go to in order to kill him. And notice the wording of the prayer, Abba Father, a tender moment of Jesus praying to his heavenly father. This relational tenderness then leads to obedience. Father, your will be done, not what I want. The writer of the Hebrews summarizes the prayer in Hebrews 5, 7 to 8. 
in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. The father could save Jesus. He could change the plan. He could do it in a different way. Yet the father knew that this was the only way. And he knew that Jesus would be the only one that could make things right again. Jesus would have to obey. It was the will of the father. And it was the only way for salvation to be granted to repentant hearts. Jesus must suffer. He must be the living sacrifice. He must go to the cross. Verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus takes a break and goes to see his disciples. Why did he break? Did he need some comfort from his friends? Or did Jesus know somehow what was happening with the disciples? Either way, he finds the disciples asleep. Remember what Jesus charged them with. Keep watch, be my protection, pray for me. And instead, he finds them asleep. And can you blame them? It was that evening time now. The Passover had been prepared. The Passover had been eaten. And they were likely tired after they had a big meal and a walk. Yet look at what Jesus does. He points to the proud man, the man who thought he was better than everyone, the man who declared dying allegiance to Jesus. To Simon Peter, he rebukes, could you not even stay awake for one hour? Oh, your spirit is willing. You talk a good game, but you are weak for you rely on the flesh. Prayer and watchfulness were needed to save them from peril. Prayer shows that the flesh is weak and that you need the Spirit's power to keep you going. Yet the disciples had no strength to watch. Why? Because they were not praying. They relied on their weak flesh and therefore they failed. And you can just imagine the disappointment in the voice of Jesus and the sorrow of the disciples that yet again, Jesus was pointing out their inability to serve him with every fibre of their being. Verse 39. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. Jesus left to go back to prayer. He prayed the same words. Jesus was in agony. He was in distress and he prayed. Much like many of us, when in a dire situation in our lives, we often repeat our prayers, almost pleading with God to do something. Yet in this moment, once again, the disciples were fast asleep. And once again, they had no explanation, for they couldn't stay awake. The disciples couldn't even do a simple task of standing and keeping watch as they were the perimeter around Jesus protecting him. Verse 41, and he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus goes to pray a third time and returns again and rebukes them for sleeping. The time of prayer now was over. The time of rest was over. It was now time for Jesus to be obedient to the Father's will and be a living sacrifice for mankind. 
The Son of Man, meaning Jesus, was about to be betrayed. And we actually leave this passage with Jesus knowing that his betrayer in Judas is about to arrive. The disciples have been utterly useless as watchmen. They hadn't prayed for strength. They hadn't prayed for protection. And now Jesus was being led to his death. And these final words of Jesus in this passage are full of sadness. His disciples have failed him. Three times Jesus prayed, three times the disciples slept, three times Peter would deny, and three days Jesus would be in the grave. Now, having done the work in the passage, we now need to move on to applying it to our lives. What do the actions of Jesus and the disciples teach us? How can we be Christ-like in our behaviour this week? Well, let's just consider four things from this passage. The first one being the pride of distinction the pride of distinction. Did you catch the pride of Peter and his subsequent fall? His pride was all about distinction. He is better. He is more loyal. He is more faithful. But also his fall made him stand out. He would betray Jesus by denying him, not once, but three times. Although that would come after his complete inability to pray and protect Jesus. Peter proves Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Destruction always follows pride. J.C. Ryle wrote, Let us watch against pride in every shape. Pride of intellect, pride of wealth, pride in our own goodness. Nothing is so likely to keep a man out of heaven and prevent him seeing Christ as pride. So long as we think we are something, we shall never be saved. Peter thought he was something, but he ended up being nothing. It would need full restoration from Christ himself for Peter to be able to have anything again in his life. And the lesson for us is surely clear. Pride is a dangerous thing in the life of a Christian and the life of the church. We must rid ourselves of it by prayer and seeking of the Spirit. We must rid ourselves of the pride of distinction, the pride of thinking oneself as better or richer or more distinguished or someone to be listened to or a position that, if anything else, people will look at you and think, how great are you? Remember this in your pride. Your sin sent Jesus to the cross. My sin sent Jesus to the cross. How on earth can we have any pride? Sadly, all too often the pride of an individual stops them from learning, from growing, from being teachable and developing that deep faith in Jesus. All too often years of faith can fall flat because of pride. Friends, as Jesus says, be on the watch, pray, for pride is lurking in the background and we must not let it take hold. It is a sobering thought when we remember pride led Lucifer to rebel against God. Pride led the angels to fall. Pride led kings to be destroyed. Pride led the Pharisees to kill Jesus. Pride led the churches to revolt against Paul's leadership. And pride will lay waste to your faith if you let it in. We must keep watch. We must pray because pride cannot take a foothold in the life of the church or of the Christian. The second thing I want to show you is the prayer of anguish, the prayer of anguish. Why did God not answer the prayer of anguish? That is the question many ask when approaching this passage. Jesus, the Son of God, prays to be delivered from the cruel death and punishment that he would suffer, but God doesn't answer. 
The problem with such a view is that it assumes that God will always answer by giving us what we want, especially when we're struggling and we pray for the trial to be removed. We assume that God doesn't want us to go through that trial. And so we assume if we pray for it, that God will remove the trial and save us from it. Now, we've all prayed those prayers, haven't we? Prayers of complete anguish, prayers that lead to tears, prayers that come from a deep sorrow and fear, prayers that show our desperation for help. We've also likely been in the position that we feel that those prayers have gone unanswered, usually because the trial doesn't go away and we go through real tough times in our lives. And let me say this, we assume wrong. God did answer the prayer of Jesus. More than that, God prepared him for the answer. The trial was going nowhere. Jesus would have to suffer as a living sacrifice. However, God would grant him peace and strength to endure it. The rest of the Passion narrative, Jesus shows little distress in his words. He answers questions. He calmly stays quiet. He forgives another when on the cross and he pleads for forgiveness for those who would kill him. Jesus goes from distress to peace. The suffering, yes, will be extreme, but he knows he must endure and he can do so because the Father wills it. Does that not comfort you? That God hears our prayers and he does respond. He may say, I cannot take this trial away. You must go through it, but you won't be alone. I will be by your side. I will strengthen you. I will keep you. Keep your eyes fixed on me and I will walk you through it. Psalm 55 two: cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. What trial are you suffering now? What have you assumed that you're alone in? Pray with confidence. The Lord has not left you alone. He is with you. He will grant you peace. He will strengthen you. He will help you. He will help you endure. He will take you through the trial and he'll take you to the other end. Satan will try and convince you that you are alone and that God is punishing you. Never believe him. God sustained Jesus through the trial, David through the trial, Moses through the trial, Israel through the trial, the early church through the trial, even our own church through the trial of COVID. He hears your prayers, he will answer, he will help, and the devil should not be trusted in these moments. Friends, we need to pray our prayers of anguish and know that the Lord is listening and he will help. My third point is the sleeping church, the sleeping church. I couldn't help but notice the disciples sleeping. It kind of stands out in the passage, doesn't it? On the eve, Jesus is going to be betrayed and taken to be killed. The disciples are fast asleep. When prayer was needed, the disciples are asleep. When watchfulness is needed, the disciples are asleep. It reminded me of Jonah, fast asleep in the boat as the storm rages on. It seems so odd. Should they not be awake at this point? Yet it's not odd and unusual, for we see it happening today. The church is asleep. We have a society with so many that still have not heard the gospel. We have family members that have never been invited to church or shared the gospel with. We have laws being passed that make it harder and harder to live biblical lives. We have false teachers tearing up the Bible for something more palatable and easier to live by. We have Christians accepting sinful practices because, well, that will make us more inclusive and the church will grow. We have missionaries underfunded and we have parts of the world that have never heard the name of Jesus. We have the 
the poor getting poorer. We have racism amongst Christians. We have arguments in the church. We have grumblers and complainers in the church. We have people seeking the demise of the church. We have Christians embarrassed to share the gospel. We have Christians fearing persecutions. We have sermonettes instead of Bible teaching. We have activity days instead of corporate prayer. And we have pride instead of humility. Friends, know this. Satan is at war with the church and we have been found asleep. You think I'm going over the top? Just look at what the Bible says. 1 Peter 5 verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by their brotherhood throughout the world. Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The church must wake up. We are to be ambassadors for Christ. We are to be warriors for him. We're to get our sword, the word of God, and we're to use it. And if you don't know how to use it, then get onto our devotions each day as we teach you to use it. If you're too scared to use it, then pray for strength so that God will help you to use his word in a time where we are waging war against Satan. The time for the church to wake up and get serious about the great command and the great commission is now. And friends, I seem to beat this drum week in, week out, and still so much change needs to happen. We must wake up. We're at war with Satan. He is trying to destroy the church. He is trying to destroy your faith. He is going around this world. He's going around Lincoln. He's going around your own family, seeking someone to devour. Do not be found asleep. Wake up, get your armour on, get the sword, get the word of God and use it because we need faithful followers of Christ in our time. Finally, let me finish with my fourth point, the love of Christ. How could we not look at this passage and see the love of Christ? Betrayal, complaining, denial, fake loyalty, sleeping disciples and a sleeping church, pride, and all of these things in our lives and the lives of Christians, yet Jesus still went to the cross to die. What truly astounding love Jesus had for us, for me and for you. R.C. Sproul said this, in the New Testament, love is more of a verb than a noun. It has more to do with acting than with feeling. The call to love is not so much a call to a certain state of feeling as it is to the quality of action. Jesus had more than a feeling of love for us. He showed us his love. In the greatest action of all, he gave his life for us. He gave his life so that we could be set free from sin. He gave his life so that we could find forgiveness from our sin. He gave his life so that we might have right relationship with the creator God. He gave his life so that we could stand before our Lord and Savior and know that we are loved. He gave his life because he loves you. And we must never forget the love of Christ. It is power to transform, power to give life, power to break every chain of sin and death. 
So we are to go into this week armoured up, ready for battle, ready to be an ambassador for Christ, ready to pray, ready to share the word of God, ready in holy humility, ready for persecution, ready to wage war against Satan. Why? Because Jesus loves you. That is the only reason you're ever going to need that while you were still a sinner, Jesus Christ died for you because he loves you. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed praise you for Jesus and the love that he has for us. Father, forgive us for being asleep. Forgive us for not putting our armour on, for not sharing your word, for not having a deep passion for the gospel being spread, for allowing sin to rule in our lives, for allowing pride to cloud our judgment. Father, forgive us. Help us remain humble. Help us recognise that we are nothing without Jesus Christ. Help us live as ambassadors for the gospel. And Father, we pray that as the church awakens, as the church armours itself up, as the church goes out and obeys the great command and the great commission, your kingdom will increase, your kingdom will be glorified, and the name of Jesus will be lifted high. And Father, for anyone listening or watching today who doesn't yet know Jesus, who doesn't yet know that wonder of the love of Christ, that he died for them while they were still a sinner. Father, we pray right now that you would touch their hearts and lead them to you. And so we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.